fine. Oh shit! All right, hello everybody, and welcome back to the Pro Wrestle Zone podcast. As always, this is Dan the Beast. Alongside with me is the DVD Freak, and continuing on with the year two thousand two, we are now on Backlash. Backlash took place April twenty first of two thousand two, live from Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, and your hosts were, as always, Jim Ross and Gary the King Waller. Um, Interesting facts about this pay-per-view. This was the first WWE or WWF pay-per-view after the brand extension. Uh, this was also the first time WWE hosted a pay-per-view in this arena, in this city. First time in four years since the tragic accident of Owen Hart. Um, you know, initially we thought, or... I should say initially I thought this was going to be an attempt to form two separate companies. Because you figure Raw, SmackDown, Vince had no more competition. And this was right around the time Vince was probably like, hey, I'm bored. You know, time to get some ratings going. So why not split the roster, have some go to Raw and some go to SmackDown? And uh, it wasn't bad. You know, it definitely wasn't a bad first attempt. Obviously, they were still going through the process of um, the name change, trying to develop new stars, uh, especially the SmackDown brand, because I always felt like the SmackDown brand was very underutilized um, until they practically shown what they were made of. We had the SmackDown 6. You had Angle, Mysterio, uh, Benoit, Cena, Lesnar, and Guerrero. If I haven't mentioned him already, but yeah. uh, oh, um, Chavo was part of the SmackDown Six. And okay, yeah. uh, so Chavo too, but um, this was the first. This was actually the first pay per view as well, after being released on home video to have the WWE logo. As you guys can see, uh, as DVD Freak presents the Backlash pay-per-view as the WWE logo, but as soon as you pop into this, it's still going to be advertised as a WWF pay-per-view. Um, going into this pay-per-view, um, Hulk Hogan had already quit the NWO, and he researched back to his old red and yellow colors even though he had done that in WCW back around 1998-1999. But this was around the time Hulk was starting to make a resurgence as a big name since returning to the WWF back at No Way Out. And um, the NWO basically responded by attacking him and replacing him with X-Pac, who was also a former member of the NWO. And he had came back... I believe a couple. I believe the same week after WrestleMania. So that was. I can't say it was necessarily a treat, but it was always good to see an original member of the WCW version of the NWO. But also, um, it was more of like a click type of affiliated type deal with this group, as we would see later on. Shawn Michaels would join the group. And uh, they would later try to acquire Triple H within the storyline. And practically, the 
rest is history after that. But getting into this pay-per-view, uh, DVD Freak, uh, your thoughts? I, um, as you all know, I'm a huge Ruthless Aggression Era fan. And I absolutely love the brand extension. Um, it was a way to, A, utilize talent, because think about it. You have ECW, WCW, and WWF talent here. So this was a great way of utilizing them and making sure you could have breakout stars. You could, you know, let everyone have their time to shine and opportunity. But at the same time, it gave competition within the company, um, which I always liked that dynamic. You know, there was very much Raw and there was very much SmackDown. They, you know, if you look at like shoot interviews with former guys, they'll always say, this was a legit attempt at topping the other, especially Paul Heyman. He always said his goal was to beat SmackDown every single week. And to me, this was the glory years of SmackDown. I could watch any SmackDown uh, show from 2002 and 2003 and just have the absolute time of my life. So this was a great time to be a fan. And you can see a lot shaping up here. Because I've always said the latter, the latter half of 2002 was always better than the first half. And you can start to see it shaping up here. Um, you have some great rivalries going into this, like Kurt Angle and Edge. They had a phenomenal rivalry at this time. And I, um, we'll talk more about this later. I'm not a fan of Hogan winning the title. But you have to understand how hot he was at this time. So if they were going to cash in on him... Now was the time. So, you know, you know, even after, especially after like Triple H, he had that, he won the Rumble, and then he won them in the main event of WrestleMania. Just to take it away from him, Backlash, come on. I may not be the world's biggest Triple H fan. I'm kind of neutral with Triple H, depending on the era. But at this time, I thought this was, no pun intended, his time. And um, I, I felt like they should have just kept the title on him and let him have a, you know, strong year with it. Right. Um, like like I said in the last review, I mean that whole rivalry, nonetheless, was just based upon Stephanie McMahon getting in the way, um, in Triple H's relationship. But also, this was a way of giving Hulk that resurgence of possibly want being like one of the top guys again around this time despite him not being the most agile and you know what so funny i was actually talking to nick Kirk about this today and um we you know we happened to mention hulk hogan in the discussion and uh he was telling me you know i was telling him i was like listen when it comes to hulk hogan he wasn't known for moves he wasn't known for doing all these athletic moves. He was just known for making moments. He was known for making, you know, big household name draws and basically uh, money. That's all it was. It was all about the money. If it wasn't about the money, there would be no Hulk Hogan. Uh, let me ask you something. Was he asking you about Chris Jericho? He was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah he asked me to. Talking yeah. about you know, being like a big, uh, like a big draw or a big household name in the wrestling. And I basically told him, 
like he is in some aspects because when you look at Jericho, he's very articulate because obviously he can multitask between doing wrestling and music. And he's over in both, you know. He's that one guy that you could look at in wrestling and say, hey, you know, his theme, you know, his songs that he's, you know, made his entrance with throughout the years is what made Chris Jericho. Also, you know, obviously he has a lot more athleticism. He could show a lot more um, agility in the ring opposed to Hulk Hogan. Maybe not as much nowadays. Obviously, Jericho's getting up there in age and a bit tweaked down. I wouldn't necessarily say that he draws tickets, but he draws entertainment. And he's definitely, I guess you would say, a, uh, a commodity uh, comedy figure these past couple of years, or as always. But he's definitely dwindled down as being one of those guys, not only being... I guess you would say one of the pioneers of AEW, but also being one of those guys to put over the next generation of superstars. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, we had talked about it earlier. We had a pretty good conversation about it. So yeah. Shout out to Nick Kurtz. Go check out his channel. I'll be making a video with him later tonight. Oh, awesome. All right. Hey, I'll definitely Um, look forward to that. Yeah. So, um, shall we get in? Oh, there's one thing I want to talk about real quick. Um, it's odd seeing the Kemper Arena. Anytime they go there, it's just odd. I'm always looking at the rafters every time. Yeah, you know, when I saw the outside of the arena, it, it kind of gave me a little bit of chills because it's like, obviously they're not going to mention anything. No. But obviously fans who were probably in attendance for, for that show were probably at this show as well. And were probably looking up and saying, thank God. Nothing like this is going to happen. Because I'm not going to lie. I saw glimpses of Over the Edge on the network. And I know it's like highly edited and everything. But it was kind of like one of those things where you're tempted to watch it. Like how bad could have this been? Obviously it was bad enough because we lost somebody. But just going throughout the show. And I remember just watching... The, the mixed tag team match between Jarrett and uh, Deborah going up against Nicole Bass and Val Venus. And, you know, obviously, uh, JR's, you know, the way JR presented himself during commentary was just very, I, I want to say nonchalant, but he wasn't as enthusiastic as he would throughout the entire show. And I know they cut, like, some type of camera angle where they had, like, the camera angle all the way back. And I think it was just to prevent um, showing that shot of Jarrett looking up in the ceiling or looking up in the rafters. Because I know he said during one of his interviews that he looked up to see, like, wow, how high did he fall from? That's, yeah. But, um... But anyway, going on... uh, Going on with this show here, um, definitely a treat. The first match that we had on here was for the WWE Cruiserweight Championship between Billy Kidman and Tajiri. Now, getting into this match, first of all, first of these, both of these guys are highly over, despite being cruiserweights. And secondly, 
they can wrestle. I these guys got a huge pop. One of my favorite moments was Tajiri trying to go for a uh, a back elbow handspring, and Billy Kidman just hits him with a drop kick in the back, and the crowd just pops. Yeah, I thought that was so fucking cool. But one mistake that Billy Kidman should have known by Tajiri is not to set him up for a power bomb. Why would you do that? <laughs> He's going to spray mist in your face. Yeah, um, I'm a huge Tajiri fan. He is, um, back then, you know, as a kid, he was one of my favorites. And I just love the mist. I, I know Rick and, I think Rick and I had talked about how much we just love the mist. And it's just like, I, I love how unpredictable it can be. You know, yeah, obviously the last thing you expect, because this was still kind of early on in Tajiri's career, uh, in WWF, that is. Obviously, he had been other places, but not everyone was like, oh, this is where the mist is coming. So it was always that what if factor of, oh, he's setting up for a powerbomb, here it goes, and then you got the mist. And that's not a spot you would expect, the mist and the powerbomb. So I, I do love this finish. Yeah. Um, surprisingly, this was a good cruiserweight match um, from the WWF at that time. One thing that kind of bothers me as a pet peeve is them still having the WCW design of the cruiserweight championship, which obviously they would change within like a month or so. But I yeah. just always find that as a big pet peeve. It's like, okay, you're calling it the WWF cruiserweight championship when it has the big words. WCW right on the side. So it's like, it kind of kills it. But you know what? Unfortunately, um, the Cruiserweight division at this time, it kind of necessitated um, the burial of the division before it got so over that it screwed everything up. You know, because like the Cruiserweight, I would say the Cruiserweight division was good up until 2007. Um, I mean, not saying that the cruiserweight division isn't bad now. I mean, half of the roster is probably cruiserweights nowadays. <laughs> but at the same time, it's not as over as being like one of those exclusive matches to a certain brand. Because you got to look at it. Back in the day, when you had the Raw Women's Championship, that was Raw exclusive. When you had the Cruiserweight Championship, that was SmackDown exclusive. If you, want, if you wanted to see the Cruiserweights, you had to tune into SmackDown. Nowadays, you watch Raw on SmackDown, which I highly feel bad for you if you do. But, yeah. you know, it's like you can watch these Cruiserweights anywhere. They even have their own show. Did that show even exist? 205 Live? It's like... Is it still live? I do I remember um, when I went to SmackDown 1000, they pre-taped 205 Live before it. So I'm just like, why, uh, like, why call it live? Like they were literally taping it. Right. But you know, I actually I liked how they treated the cruiserweights in like 2016 and 17. You know, they would change the ropes, they would get it all, you know, all ramped up. But, I mean, I forget that there's even a... Cru well, the Cruiserweight title's in NXT now, right? Yeah, it's now known so, as the 
NXT Cruiserweight title, which is still not bad. I mean, it, it's gone through a few modifications, which I like. You know, they finally added the black strap because that purple strap was just too damn loud, in my opinion. And obviously, they did some rearrangements with the platings and everything. So it definitely looks like a more uh, prestigious title as you know, appearance wise. Well, that's one uh, of the only. That's one of the only titles that looks prestigious nowadays in that company. So, yeah. But other than that, this match definitely wasn't a bad start. I mean, another thing I would probably say. I know I mentioned earlier not the power bomb to Jerry. You could say the same thing for Billy Kidman because if you were to set Billy Kidman up for a power bomb, he's going to hit you with that face bust. Yeah. But going on to one of the segments here, we had Brash on Farouk, you know, having a little joyful reunion. But it's, like, kind of awkward, you would say, because it's like, uh, you guys just got drafted, like, two fucking weeks ago, and here you are making compliments, like, oh, hey, he looks great. Like, oh, yeah, maybe he grew, like, a couple inches of his hair. But this guy has only been away for, like, two fucking weeks. It hasn't even been a year. Well, so, here's, here's my problem with this. Because the next match, obviously, Farouk was involved in. Why have this segment? You would have got a ten times bigger pop if you didn't have this segment before it, which was already foreshadowing them making an appearance together. Right. Like, get rid of this whole segment completely and then have Farouk come out as that little surprise again. Like, that would have been cool. So I feel like this segment ruins the next match in a lot of ways. It's just like... You ruined the surprise factor there. Because you literally just saw them talking minutes before. Yeah, right. So that was basically a, a bad uh, build-up right there. But getting into this match, we had Scott Hall, which this would be his final WWF pay-per-view before being released from the company uh, in May. Uh, he's accompanied by X-Pac as he takes on Bradshaw, being accompanied by his former... APA buddy, Farouk. Now, this was during a time where, you know, this was during Bradshaw's second or third failed singles run because he's had a couple singles runs since, <laughs> I want to say 94 or 95. Yeah. He was known as Just Talk Bradshaw. After he broke up with uh, Barry Windham and the new Blackjacks, they decided, hey, let's make him a single star again. That didn't work out. Ended up uh, forming a tag team with Farouk, known as the Alkalites, then the APA. Then they defi- they finally decided to split them up, which that literally had no fucking point because you ended up putting them together by the end of 2002. Same thing with the Dudley boys. And the, oh. Hardy, and the Hardys as well. They put them back together. And you know what? Not, you know, not surprisingly, but the way I see it, once he stopped copying Stan Hansen, and started copying Ted DiBiase. That's when JBL got over. Let's oh, just yeah. put it that way. <laughs> like, well, I, le- I legitimately hate JBL just because, uh-huh. like, that is like that's heat right there. Like, he was a true heel. I can appreciate his talent. Never, I love him as a talent. But like back in the day, I fucking hated him. Like, <laughs> and that's that's on him. Like that, that just shows that character worked. And. Basically, how this match was set up was due to the NWO 
trashed the old APA office. Like, can't get any more. You know, <laughs> I forgot to use the door. Let me come in through this way, you know. Ooh. God forbid we forgot to do any renovation with walls. God forbid we don't even have any fucking, uh, oh, my God, what is it? Fucking whatever they call that shit. But anyway, um, you know, this was basically just a brawl. You know, Hall playing the typical heel, bailing outside to the ring, throwing the toothpick at Bradshaw. Um, you know, Hall takes over, but does nothing more, but, you know, nothing more interesting than punches, you know, because I guess that was pretty much his arsenal back at that time. Um, just throwing more punches than he would do maneuvers. Um, Bradshaw, uh, shoulder blocks him, and then he hits him with a clothesline from hell. X-Pac puts, uh, Hall's foot on the ropes, you know, getting that two count. Oh, you know, let this match fucking end already. This match ain't getting any better. Yeah. Baruch chases X-Pac around, distracting Bradshaw enough for Hall to hit a low blow and a schoolboy, which this match is like five minutes or so, maybe five minutes. Yeah, five and a half, maybe, I think it was. Somewhere around there. But just to sum it up, this was a slugfest, which is fine when Bradshaw is doing all the slugging. And, you know, Scott Hall's tank was pretty much empty by this point. You know, Scott Hall was pretty much like, hey, I don't care. I've had enough. I'm more concerned about alcohol and pills at this point than my own wrestling career, which... Hey, got some Jack Daniels. I don't mind that, but <laughs> Scott Hall would disapprove of that. But other than that, it's a shame and a waste at this point. Because 2002, you really started to hype up the NWO. Everybody was excited to see the NWO, even though initially McMahon only wanted to bring back Hogan. But, you know, people in the back, hey, let's bring back Hall and Nash. And it's like, listen. Those two were, you know, were to be on their best behavior in the back. You know, they're just trying to be like one of the boys. We're not here to cause no trouble. You know, you may sit, you may think we're a lethal juice of poison, but hey, you know, we're just trying to be your nice Pillsbury dough fucking biscuits. Nice and soft. Take it easy, fellas. You know? (laughs) Oh, boy. What do we have next? And we go to our next segment. In the back, we had uh, Vince McMahon barges into Ric Flair's office, and he asked him, you know, if there's a method to his madness and naming himself the special guest referee. And, you know, just to put it there, you know, only time will tell. We shall see as we go on through uh, the rest of this review. But coming up next, ladies and gentlemen, we have the WWF Women's Championship on the line as Jazz. Takes on Trish Stratus, something that I told you before, uh, you know, raw exclusive title. Because back in, well, a lot of these titles weren't exclusive yet, as you know, the titles were still bouncing around. Um, the IC title throughout the year went between Raw and SmackDown. Uh, the tag team titles at the, at the time uh, was only one set before they decided, hey, we're going to have two sets, which I'm glad they did, because if they didn't bring SmackDown tag team titles, we probably wouldn't have gotten 
the greatest tag team match of that year with Chris Benoit and Chris are Chris Benoit and Kurt Angle taking on Edge and Rey Mysterio. Favorite match of all time, which is another DVD I ended up finding at that, That's your favorite match of all time? Period? Not my favorite match of all time, but my favorite match from that year. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. But going into these two, you know, these two met on the first ever brand extended Raw, which, you know, these two have had some pretty decent matches uh, throughout the course of the year going into 2003. I've always enjoyed Jazz. Um, very underrated. Very underrated. Um, I think... Hold on, let me see. Yeah, so Molly Holly, who lost a number one contender's match to Trish, accused Trish of cheating, um, which she did, and lays her out before the match. And uh, Jazz... Uh, she ends up, she grabs her um, and side slams Trish. Trish fights back, but gets, uh, you know, gets rolled up. And, oh boy, I got to restart my screen. What the hell? Come on, my notes. But uh, if you want to take it away with this match as I recover my notes here. Yeah, I mean, this was before Trish was Trish. Like, this was... Um... Yeah, I always said, like, WrestleMania 19, which is my favorite pay-per-view. But that's when Trish became Trish Stratus. And, which also, I think Jazz was in that match as well, with Victoria. Yeah. And, you know, this match is okay for a women's match. Um, there's not too much to say about this, really. Uh, I don't know, it's, like I said, it's just a women's match, and... To go back to what you said about, you know, the titles jumping around, this was when they were, because this is the first pay-per-view after the brand extension. So, you know, the titles were still trying to find their home. And they were really trying to figure out, okay, you know, we have this brand extension, what's going to work and what's not? Because that's something you have to test out. You can't just say, oh, let's put this title over here and see what happens. No, you got to really see you know what title has the chemistry it needs with each show and i always thought the i thought raw should have the women's title and you know in conjunction with that yeah smackdown have the cruiserweight title and i'm not a real big fan of women's wrestling at this time um so you know this is um it is what it is as i always say you know, it's not the most exciting match ever, but you know, Jazz was always underrated to me. She did, she never see her get mentioned ever. Right. But I I think she deserves mentioning. Like she's up there for sure. So, you know, it's pretty nice to see her make somewhat of a resurgence in uh, AEW as well. Um, you know, that's definitely one woman I wouldn't sleep on. Uh, not sure how she's doing nowadays. But, you know, if, AB, if AEW were to sign her a contract, I'd say, hey, go for it. Yeah. But, but, you know, looking at Jazz, she was just pure dominance in this match. You know, she plants Trish with a sit-out powerbomb. She chokes out Trish on the ropes. Um, she counters the Stratisfaction to a cradle slam for two. Um, 
And then we see Jazz working on the leg. You know, he sets her up with that dragon screw, sets her up with a crossing crab, and then an STF for the submission. Which, this match ended up as a short match, surprisingly. I, I wish this match would have went on a little bit longer. Uh, this was right around the time um, people started recognizing that Trish was maturing as a wrestler, I would say. Yeah, like I said, this was before she was Trish Stratus. Right. You know, it's like a good way to look at it is like John Cena during his thugonomics gimmick. Like, he wasn't John Cena yet, you know? Right. Like, because, like, the, she's probably, I would say to modern fans, she's probably the most recognizable name ever for women's wrestling, just mainstream-wise. And she had a slow build. She really did. Like, I remember when she was fucking barking like a dog, you know? And she was involved in the uh, whole McMahon gimmick in 2000, where he was we- where she was wheeling Linda around. Yeah. So she came a long way. And this was 2002. She was really building to that. And then 2003 is when they really pulled the trigger. I, you know, I, I definitely agree with that. And, you know, same thing with, like, John Cena, too, because the way I picture John Cena going through his thumb, you know, thugonomics to which something that he would eventually become today, it's, like, kind of like reality when people go through their teenage years and then they finally, you know, adjust as an adult. You know, that's the way I kind of look at John Cena. Um, yeah, they're finding uh, themselves. Yeah. Right. And it kind of and, JBL, JBL at this time, too. That's another really good example. He was finding himself. Took a little longer for JBL, but eventually... It, he it up did, yeah. And uh, when he found himself, he fucking found himself. Because that JBL character was just... That was gold. Wrestling God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, going on to the next... Uh, moment here. Um, it was a recap of Paul Heyman, you know, sniffing Lita's panties and uh, offering <laughs> to tell Brock Lesnar to take it easy on Matt Hardy if she plays nice with him. <laughs> Lita refused, so Brock destroyed Matt with a F- F5 on the entrance ramp. Um, I remember that so vividly, too. I was just like, you know, Matt, I wouldn't want to fuck with him. Like, please don't. Just stay back. But yeah. we ended up getting the risk taker the other half of the Hardy Boys here as Brock Lesnar making his pay-per-view debut against Jeff Hardy. And I'm just going to put it at this. This match was about a five-minute match. And basically, Brock Lesnar won by technically knocking out Jeff Hardy or, you know, Teddy, or Teddy, uh, ironically, Teddy Long's in this match. Uh, Teddy Long stopping the match, being concerned over Jeff's health, especially after taking several fucking power pumps. Yeah, this would be considered a TKO, technical knockout, because he's not knocked out. But it's, I'm a, I'm a big MMA fan, so it's just like when you can, when a referee can tell that they're just in danger and they can't take it anymore, and you know they ring the bell. And it's in 2002, especially like, it's just like Teddy Long as a ref. Uh, to me. Sorry, he was never a ref. I always saw him as the personality. And right. this this match was exactly what it was meant to be and supposed to be. You know, Brock 
he made his debut after WrestleMania 18. And I'll never forget the chair shots he took from Matt and Jeff. I don't know if you've seen that. You remember that? Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, that, that, that hard whack that he did to Brock's face Jesus. and Brock Lesnar's just like, he's yeah, still like, standing. I was like, what the fuck? Yeah, I remember Jeff just fucking wanting with it. But, um, you know, and we all know what happens in at SummerSlam with Brock. So this was, they were uh, building him up. And this is what it should have been, you know. It was, it was a really long squash match. Uh, yeah. I think this was like five minutes as well. So, yeah, this was, um, it's good for character building. And, you know, I'm a, Hall, I'm a Paul Heyman guy. So, you know, I love seeing Paul Heyman and Brock Lesnar together, especially during this, you know, they were developing that next big thing. And this match, you know, a lot of people didn't know it maybe at the time that he was actually the next big thing. But this was a nice little bump in the road for him, you know. This was definitely um, the reckoning of what would soon become the next big thing, Brock Lesnar. And the way I see this match, this was a pretty decisive victory for Brock. Um, and it certainly got him over as a monster, I guess you would say, as being like one of the most dominant forces uh, during this time. But, you know, in 2002, let's just put it in McMahon's words, um, Monsters were passe. So, but, you know, Brock at that time, he proved to be a wrecking ball. He was just like, you know, when I, when I was first experienced Brock, you know, growing up and everything, he was that intimidating factor, which you would want in everybody or every superstar who at least debuts. Uh, especially when it comes to big guys. So, like, if you look at, like, Undertaker when he debuted at Survivor Series, Kane, when he made his appearance at the 97 uh, Bad Blood Hell in a Cell match, and then you got guys like Brock Lesnar who's basically, you know, dismantling all these fucking little guys and high flyers and, you know, powerbombing Spike Dudley or Al Snow through trash cans and tables and, you know, technically knocking out Jeff Hardy to, you know, a state of consciousness where he's unable to compete. That's what made Brock Lesnar Brock Lesnar. You know, not the guy that you see nowadays who performs like 20 German suplexes and then hits five F5s for a victory. But Um, this was, you know, fresh out of amateur slash developmental Brock Lesnar. So this was like Brock Lesnar that you wanted to have on your team. Yeah, and this was when Brock Lesnar was still hungry. Because nowadays, he phones it in. Like, he'll probably have one good match, maybe, at, like, a Survivor Series. And that's about it. Whereas this was when he wanted to be successful. This was before he was making $12 million a year for 12 appearances. So this was, when you have, I've always said, one of the greatest of all time is Brock Lesnar when he wants he when he wants it when he tries. And then he has that bad reputation cuz 90% of the time he's just lazy. Right. And I know John Cena said he thinks Brock Lesnar is the greatest of all time, which you know, that's fine. Imagine what we would get if he was putting in 100% effort every time. Like Brock, he's smart, he knows what he's doing, but he's a businessman. 
he knows how to make the money with doing less. And that's sad because he really is a great talent. Right. Definitely. I mean, you can't sit there and say that Brock Lesnar is not a future Hall of Famer because, I oh, mean, yeah. well, I, he, did, he did make a quick upstart by the time he debuted. So, Well, he beat the streak, too. So that's an automatic induction right there. Yeah, first class <laughs> ticket right there. <laughs> but going on to our next match here, very favorable match of you and me, you know, oh, yeah. especially this match. Uh, we had Edge versus Kurt Angle out of the, you know, Edge and Kurt Angle matches that we would see. And the last pay-per-view that we would see Kurt Angle with a full set of hair. Which, well, if you want to count Judgment Day, but... Technically, wrestling with a full set of hair. Let's just put it that way. But, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I'll tell you what, man. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I fucking hate Edge's entrance music so much here. It's the most generic goddamn bullshit. Ain't nothing gonna stop me. Nothing's gonna stop me. Fuck you. Like, it's just so bad and stupid. Like, Edge is this great fucking hardcore character. And you just have this bland fucking generic music. Ask me what my least favorite theme song of all time for any wrestler is. This is it. I fucking hate it. Well, you know, it's kind of like one of those, you know, mental images in your mind where wherever you hear this song now, you're automatically going to think of Edge. Yeah, like, I, I fucking hate this song. And it's just, it's so not Edge. Like... It's just not. And I think even he said he fucking disdained this music. And I was like, all right. And then I finally listened to it again. I'm just like, oh, God. Like, I understand. Like, this is not Edge. This music is fucking trash. I hate it. It doesn't belong anywhere near wrestling. Like, this is up there with, like, Candace Michelle's music. Like, the fuck, like. Oh, God, it's just so awful. I hate it. <laughs> but, um... Get on with these two. Um, Angle and Edge. Angle was good enough to have great matches with just about anybody. But this was around the time that he wasn't a draw. So, he got stuck working with Edge. Which is not a bad thing, because those two put on one hell of a match. Well, I mean, at... At the time, this was before Edge was, like, insanely over and the star he was. So, in a way, this was a demotion for Kurt Angle. But at the same time, look what we got out of it. And, you know, you got to remember this, too. This was also around the time that Edge was also seen as a potential draw, but who was still getting his feet wet as a single star because he had recently just got, you know, betrayed by Christian after the 2001 King of the Ring. So after those two separated, it was like, all right, let's see what we could do with the both of them as singles competitors. And something that I'll agree with you on, I mean, I am, I do love Edge, but I will always prefer Christian always over Edge. Yeah, but- they're, look, they're both great. Um, I just love Christian Cage so much for like his work in TNA and stuff. And Edge, I will say, he's the better worker out of the two. But I think Christian, there's something about him that I just always love, that personality and that bravado. He was, uh, Christian's great, man. 
Yeah. I, I tell you what, you know, one more match. One more. You know, if Edge can do it, Ed, uh, Christian can definitely uh, have somewhat of a, you know, longevity match without fighting Orton with clothes on and getting punted in Ed. But uh, I'll tell you what, man. I will wet my fucking pants if him and Edge get the tag team titles one more time. I would shit myself. Like, that, to me, like, that would be a dream. They're one of my favorite tag teams ever. And just to see, and I don't care, you know, if people are like, oh, but they're old talent. You're supposed to put over the new talent. Well, guess what? It's Edge and Christian. They're better than 90% of the people we have nowadays. You know what? Let's do it for these guys right here. For all the benefits of flash photography, me and the DVD freak are going to do a five-second pose. You ready? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, you know, getting back on the edge here, you know, this was seen, he was seen as a potential draw in order to make him look good. So, you know, Edge took full advantage of the opportunity, I would say, and eventually led him to main event status, which we wouldn't see for another four years, which I could see why, because obviously he went through the neck injury, and they tried to rebuild him back up. And around mid-2000s, late 2000s, he became one of the best heels of all time. Yeah. Let's just put it that way. Hell yeah. And um, interestingly, you know, Kurt assumes the veteran role, you know, in this aspect, I guess you would say, because uh, just because of Angle's background as uh, an Olympic gold medalist who won an Olympic gold medal with a broken freaking neck. But, you know, he has that amateur background, but at the same time, he picked it up so quickly. Same thing with Brock, as we were just talking about earlier. Or, you know, the odd thing about this is Edge actually has several more years of experience on him more than Angle. So the fact that yeah. Edge is getting kind of the rookie treatment over Angle, despite Edge debuting a year before Angle, it's kind of weird. But at the same time, Angle, like I said, he just... He picked up on it really, really quick, and that's what made him one of the faster rising stars of, you know, the 2000s. Well, you have to also look at it. Edge was in a tag team, and when you split a tag team up, you're going to put them lower. You know, they have to prove themselves as a single superstar. But this match, I, uh, I forgot how fucking amazing this match is. This crowd... They lit up. Like, this to me, this is one of my favorite Kurt Angle matches. I would say my favorite is him and Benoit or him and Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania. But, like, I put this at, like, number three. And this is one of my favorite, if not my favorite, Edge matches. Like, this is just new level. And no one really expected this, too, because it's in the middle of the card. You know, it's just kind of this rivalry that really um, has nothing on the line. You know, there's not a title on the line or anything. So this was like a surprise. It woke up the crowd, man. Like, they were so into this. 
I was marking out for it, and this happened 18 years ago. Like yeah. this is just, oh my god, this is what this is one of those matches that I'm like, all right, this is why I'm a wrestling fan, you know. And you know what? This was a case of Edge, you know, fights fire with fire. You know, he's hitting a couple belly to belly suplexes. We yeah. see some German suplexes, missile drop kicks. He kicks out of an angle slam, which was probably the most surprising, you know, surprisingly out of this match. There you were know, a lot of there were a lot of near falls in this match. A lot of near falls. You know, this is what I liked about this match because it was very back and forth and very anticipating. So it was like, you know, just when you thought it was finished, uh-uh, nope, not yet. Uh, you know, then we'll see um, Angle gets frustrated and grabs the chair, but it backfires when he misses and swings and it bounces back into <laughs> his face and that gets two and sets up for the spear, but Angle gets the boots, um, boots him in the face and then finishes off with another Angle slam, which this match was almost 14 minutes. And uh, let me tell you, this was one of those matches that made people sit, sit up and take notice of Edge as a real single star. He always had the look of a star, but in 2002, I would say he started to grow into that role. Had it not been for injuries, I would say, if it had not been for injuries, he probably would have been a main eventer the following year. Yeah, I mean, with WrestleMania 19, I think he would have been in a marquee match for sure. And he missed two WrestleManias. 19 and yeah. 20. And I think at both of those he would have been he would have been great, but at the same time, look at what we did get at WrestleMania 21 with him winning money in the bank. So, you know, I don't believe in fate or anything, but like just by coincidence, it all worked out and who knows, it could have it might not have worked out if he was at those WrestleManias. You know, it um it all happens the right way. So I think those injuries, I think it helped him. Well, let me tell you this. I mean, obviously, WrestleMania 19, uh, I think he was supposed to be Benoit's partner in that triple threat tag team match at WrestleMania 19. So Really? I, I, you know, I, I think that's the only reason why they replaced, um, replaced him with Rhino. That's why they had Rhino teaming up with Benoit. Obviously, okay. both of them knew how to do a spear, so... They were like, well, wow. we don't have Edge. We're going to have a Rhino. Let's have, have a problem Rhino. <laughs> They're just like, if we can't get a spear, we might as well get a gore. Yeah. <laughs> you know, doesn't mean, you know, it's different, right? Just a different name. <laughs> yeah. They, they probably went backstage to Rhino like, hey, we got some free catering here if you want to be involved in this WrestleMania 19 match. Like, yeah, why not? You know, get some cheese whiz with some crackers. Puh, I'm living over life but <laughs> doing that fucking cheese wasn't crackers <laughs> uh but going <laughs> going on to the next segment here we had uh you know chris jericho complaining that he wasn't booked for the show so he's leaving the arena and you know he's definitely not hanging around certainly not for the main event you know but going on to another match that I would say another match that stole the show. And, you know, we're, we're switching it over now. Now we're on the Raw side of things. We have the Intercontinental Championship on the line with 
two guys who are perfectionists at hitting a frog splash, I would say. Rob Van Dam versus Eddie Guerrero. Now, Eddie Guerrero had made his triumphant return on the first Raw after the brand split and laid RVD out. Eddie, eat, uh, you know what, this match going in all together, it was another back-and-forth type matchup. I mean, well, actually, no. I mean, this was more one-sided, but, you know, they pick up the right one side to dominate, you would say. Uh, Eddie really needed this kind of dominating performance to, you know, cement his comeback. And kudos to Van Dam for letting Eddie turn him into his bitch, I guess you would say. But other than that, you know, I, I love these guys. They had some pretty good matches around this time. Um, I'm not sure if you guys recall the ladder match that those two had on Monday Night Raw, and then you had that fan yeah, interference to the match. I was just going to mention that. Um, that That's a very forgotten ladder match. It's like Jeff Hardy and RVD. Nobody talks about that ladder match to the unified to unify the European and Intercontinental belts. Um, RVD and Eddie Guerrero, they had some fucking chemistry, for sure. And this was when Eddie, he was fresh, he was sober, you know. He was really trying to prove himself due to, you know, he was let go before. And this was really his second chance in WWE. And um, he was taking this seriously. And like you said, he's a perfectionist. He's a Benoit. He's an absolute perfectionist. And then you have RVD, who's the whole fucking show. So, you know, that dynamic itself is going to get you a great match. But going into what you said before about the Jericho segment, I did want to say this. It's smart because even though Jericho's not on the show, this was a good way of still having heat with him and still having him involved. Yeah. Because um, it'd be stupid to just not have him on the show at all. So this is one of the. Uh, this is back when WWE did smart things, and they actually showed some intelligence. You know, I th- it's little details like, oh, let's have Jericho just kind of show up in this little segment. What it's it's keeping continuity. It's great. You know, it's making sure he's still involved, even though he's not on the pay per view itself. So. Yeah. I mean, I could definitely uh, agree on those standards, uh, nothing less. Um, but obviously, we would see the heat pick back up between uh, Chris Jericho at one of the following uh, pay-per-views, which we'll get on to at another date. But you know what? I'm not going to lie. I, I love the arsenal of Eddie Guerrero in this match, nonetheless. I love how he hit a tilt-a-whirl backbreaker and a Mexican surfboard into a dragon sleeper. <laughs> yeah. Wow! Yikes! You know, I'm a, you know I love dragon sleeping. Owen Hart uh, ended up using it later on in his career, but to do a Mexican surfboard into a dragon sleeper that must hurt. That's that's excruciating pain for me. But you know what? Talking about you know, Van Dam letting Eddie Guerrero get in the win in this match. Um, you know, it paid off, too, because the two had a memorable feud, and both guys came out of the summer better for it. Let's just put it that way. I mean, RVD would somewhat have a push in mid-late 2002, 
um, challenging Triple H for the World Heavyweight Championship. And then, I mean, Eddie Guerrero, he was still having big feuds. You know, he, he ended up going against, like, Edge uh, throughout the summer, but then he started teaming up with his uh, nephew Chavo, and they became one of SmackDown's greatest tag teams. So, Eddie was still getting a little bit of that shine, but it wasn't until 2003, 2004, where we see Eddie Guerrero catapult to the top. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love Los Guerreros so much. But Eddie's a single star. And that's no devotion to Chavo. Like, I love Chavo Guerrero. I do. I think he's very underrated. But, you know, they had their little tag team run. But Eddie, for me, he will always be that singles star. One of the greatest of all time. You know, I remember his WCW matches. You know, one of my favorite matches ever. Him and Ray at Halloween Havoc. Like, goddamn. Like, he took it to a new level. And, you know, he was so over with the fans, even though technically he was this piece of shit wrestler who would lie, cheat, and steal. Like, that's when you know you're good. When you can capture the fans at the same time as just being that piece of shit, you know? And, you know, like I said, he was, this was his big second chance. So he was really trying to prove himself. So this was a great time to be an Andy Guerrero fan because he was putting his all into it. Because he realized, if I fuck up this time, I got nothing. Right. And, uh, I mean, unfortunately, I I don't like to be that, uh, you know, that stereotypical guy. But, you know, Eddie Guerrero at that time, as you said, he wanted to take this more seriously. Obviously, we've seen him take him more seriously uh, when it comes to uh, body mass as well. Because well, obviously, he was here, yeah. he got jacked. Well, and, and look what happened. So, yeah. yeah. Unfortunately. But uh, going into this next match here, we had a number one contenders match with special guest referee Ric Flair. Stone Cold Steve Austin versus The Undertaker. And this was practically the last year for Stone Cold Steve Austin as his career finally started to windle down. He was starting to get involved in storylines that he wasn't necessarily in favor of or whether he was in favor of, he wanted to go his way. And, you know... Going, you know, going up against Undertaker, we've seen Undertaker and Steve Austin in numerous pay-per-view battles since 1997. You know, yeah. you look at 97, uh, the SummerSlam Highway to Hell match that they had. Uh, you know, some of the matches that they had at 99, which, ironically, it was actually uh, uh, over the edge 1999, four years ago from this date, that they faced um, each other for the it? WWE Championship. And Undertaker won in the main wasn't, event. Wasn't it three years? Um, yes. Wait. Yeah. Because Owen was 99, right? Yeah, 99. Okay. Yep. Yeah. I, yep. I misled that. But, yeah, it was three years from this date um, that, you know, Taker and Austin fought for the WWE Championship at Over the Edge. And... Now here we are, 2002, 
you know, three years later, and Undertaker's um, making a resurgence as, like, one of the big main event players going for the WWE Championship. And Austin's kind of just floating around. It's like, hey, we still consider you a top guy, but we just don't know where, where to put you. And, and I think this was around a time where Austin wasn't drafted, but he was able to choose what show he went on, which eventually he would end up choosing Raw. And I don't know about you, but I felt like this match took forever. Oh, my God. Uh, I was just going to ask, am I the only one that hated this match? This went 27 fucking minutes. And, like, it's overbooked. This could have went 18 minutes easy. Um, A lot of this is just filler. You know, Austin getting beat up. Right. And and I understand, like, the whole Ric Flair dynamic. And, which, um, this is one of my favorite Ric Flair moments. The segment after it, which we will talk about. So I won't spoil it now. But this match was just so goddamn boring. Like, it's just, I understand a lot of its story, but this didn't have to go 27 minutes. I was just sitting there re-watching this, and I was just like, good God, this is just dragging. I feel like this was just to honestly take up time. Right. And then you also had NWO, who was, you know, saunters out, to, you know, to observe this match, which is like, you know, we don't have to see another Scott Hall versus Stone Cold Steve Austin match. Oh, fuck like, no, we don't. You guys, you guys don't have to be out here, but obviously, you know, player had somewhat of an association with the NWO, which obviously led to player drafting these guys. But it's like, you didn't want these guys, but you end up drafting them anyway. So, like, what was the point of that? Yeah. But, you know, this match ends in a, even 27 minutes. Austin's foot was on the rope, but Flair didn't see it. That led to, uh, I guess you would say this led to Flair's heel turn. And, you know, a summer's worth of horrible book, I guess you would say, for Rick Flair, because this was also around the time that Rick Flair had a low self-esteem on confidence. Yeah. And so Triple H decided, hey, I'm going to take you under my ring. But later on into the year, and the NWO added nothing to this match other than just standing around observing, like, ooh, let's, uh, let's go check out this match. Like, maybe Austin will uh, throw us some beer. You know? Like, God forbid, hopefully they're cold. Like, Stone Cold's going to be there. Like, I ain't thirsty. But, <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, the match started out okay, but once they tried to wrestle instead of brawl, it turned into a car wreck. And not the entertaining kind. Yeah, this was, um, like I said, this could have been done in 18 minutes or even 15. And the finish is, um, it's okay. But, like, I don't know. I think Ric Flair being put into this. When I think of a number one contenders match, maybe I'm being too logical about this. A number one contenders match should always be fair. Yeah. Like, that's, because that's, that's your, uh, that's picking your number two guy. So why the fuck put Ric Flair in it? I get for heat, but I don't know. This didn't feel like a number one contenders match either. It just felt 
this was just a grudge match to me. And there was still heat with uh, Ric Flair and Taker from WrestleMania, right. which is, like I said, one of my favorite WrestleMania matches. But I, I just really feel like Ric Flair should not have been involved. Fuck the NWO. Let's have just two guys go at it for 15 minutes. There you go. Basically, yeah. And then, obviously, we would lead um, to the backstage segment with uh, Jonathan Coach. You know, he basically just intercepts Flair, and he shows him the replay of the ending of the match. And Flair's reaction was just like, oh, shit. Yeah, it wasn't even, oh, shit. It was just like, this art, you have to understand, this is one of my favorite moments in the history of wrestling. You have Ric Flair. He's just like, shit. And then walks away. I was geeking for this. Like, this is I, I, fucking, for some reason, I don't know if it was just because it was at three in the morning that I watched this, but I was dying. I I love the delivery. Shit. <laughs> like, it's just great. Like, I love it. But then we go on to the next match, which I would consider the, uh, the bathroom break. And that was for the WWF tag team titles between Billy and Chuck with their, you know, their hairstylist, Rico, taking on the team of Al Snow and Maven. Um, like I said, this was just, you know, this match was just here to give people a bathroom break. And in between the Austin and Taker match and, you know, the Hogan and Triple H match, which was soon to come. Nothing really special. Special. The crowd chants Rico's gay. Um, so he tells, <laughs> you know, so that, you know, he's telling the crowd, oh, talk to the hand. And, you know, God forbid he has to be a bitch about it. <laughs> uh, you know, they quickly realized that it would be much more productive to have Al play, you know, this uh, a face in, I don't know. <sighs> this match was just kind of like uh, random. Let's just put it that way this match was just like pure random and i think the only reason why this match was put together was because uh wwe's tag team division wasn't as good at the time it didn't really develop into a good tag division until like later on and they actually like split the brands and actually had two sets of tag titles because this was like around the time where they were just throwing guys together I mean, obviously, that's been going on for a long time. But, like, if, like, for instance, if you looked at, like, 97, where they decided to put Steve Austin uh, with Dude Love and have them win the tag team titles, you really got to think of the tag team division at that time. Most of that division at that time was all, all factions. You had the Nation of Domination. You had the Disciples of Apocalypse. You had Los, B- uh, Los Bariquas. And then you just had a whole bunch of other random tag teams that were just, uh, just like, thrown together. I mean, you had the Heart Foundation, too, which was probably the greatest faction at that time. Yeah. But you had guys like Philip and LaFonta. You had the Godwins. You had the Headbangers. Um, so the tag division is in comparison to 97. Obviously, you don't have a lot of factions, but... The tag division is just weak. So Billy and Chuck, that I would consider probably the great, you know, one of the best tag teams at this time, um, top tag teams at this time, nonetheless, is going up against a trainer and his trainee, you know. Yeah. Um, I love Billy and Chuck. I love Rico. I've said that how many times now? And 
this, unfortunately, a lot of the times, especially back then, you would have a match that has a lot of heat, which was Taker and Stone Cold with Ric Flair as the guest referee. Obviously, the crowd was into that one. There's a lot of heat for that. So you don't want to put that beside your main event because you want the crowd to be lively for your main event. So they're like, oh, let's just put this on there so they can just chill for a few minutes and then get rowdy. I'll quote JJ, get rowdy for the main event. So, yeah, I I would have preferred this somewhere else on the card. But I, I feel like it's just like, Billy and Chuck, like I said, I love them, but even the opponents, like, this was just filler. Like, obviously, they're not losing the titles here. Uh, yeah, you know, them losing the titles, the Snow and Maven, it it definitely wouldn't have gotten over at yeah. this point. At yeah. this point, after WrestleMania, WWE knew what the fuck they were doing with Maven. They didn't want nothing to do with Maven. They were just going <laughs> to use this enhancement talent and you know a nice good looking guy who could throw a nice drop kick let's just put it that way and i hate yeah. to say it but anyway going on to the main event of the evening here we had the undisputed world wrestling federation championship on the line as triple h defends uh the newly designed world wrestling federation championship against Hulk Hogan. And, um, you know, we had that awesome shot of, you know, Hogan staring over Hunter's shoulder before the match begins. And this was, you know, this was a time both guys were baby faces. Um, surprisingly, Triple H is a baby face, which, mm-hmm. ugh, that's that's weird. Yeah, um, it's like Edge <laughs> being a baby face. It just doesn't work. <laughs> nah. Nope. But both guys were baby faces coming in, but Hogan was riding the nostalgia wave. Everybody was there because of Hogan. Yep. You could, you know, you could probably think of any other fucking match on this book. I mean, maybe Austin, but everybody was there to see the return of Hulk Hogan, just to see if he would be victorious in becoming a five-time WWE or WWF, excuse me, at the time. Uh, champion and you know i think you know this match wasn't as bad but it was like you know it's kind of like one of those things where you ask yourself you know this is kind of like the brilliance of wrestling where it's like you have hogan and you're looking at hogan like can you bump can you wrestle can you do this i mean obviously we've seen some of that factor in the WrestleMania match between The Rock, you know, not as overselling as the match between Hogan and Shawn Michaels at SummerSlam 2005. Oh, God. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, this was actually pretty cool because we've seen Hogan hit a, uh, like, an ace cutter type move. And, you know, that was kind of a holy shit moment right there because you don't really see a lot a whole lot of offense from Hogan besides hitting punches and chops and you know big boots and then tries to hit the leg drop because most of the time throughout the match Hogan's just going to pull off his fucking belt and whip you with it yeah um for this match you know this is uh 
this is wrestling, I guess. You have Hulk Hogan lose at WrestleMania. And hey, at Backlash, you get the world title. But like I said earlier, uh, this was them cashing in on Hogan uh, being over. You know, if you want that ratings bump, you want merch, you want, you want the, it's the money. This was the money match because, you know, the night after WrestleMania, that ovation that Hogan got is like none other. And, you know, like I said, I think it was a horrible decision to have him beat Triple H. You don't just have somebody win the main event of WrestleMania, the world title, undisputed title, which I love the new undisputed title belt here. I I fucking love that belt. That is a beautiful belt. But you don't have him win that just to lose it at the next pay-per-view. Right. And this is a Rumble winner. He won the fucking Royal Rumble. Went on to WrestleMania, won the title in the main event. Oh, but he loses it. Like, I want to know what the original plan was here. Because obviously this wasn't the original plan. They didn't know Hogan was going to be this over. Um, Because he came in as a heel in the NWO. And then the reception he got at WrestleMania was phenomenal. And then the reception he got the night after WrestleMania was just out of this world. So they're like, all right. Put the title on him. He's going to draw money. He's going to sell merch. We got to do it now. Which I understand from a business decision, this was the right way to go. But that doesn't mean I like it. Yeah. And the thing about this match is here we go with the referee taking more bumps than the wrestler. Because you had Chris Jericho coming out in the match. You know, he whacks Hogan with a steel chair. Hunter's like, "Uh uh-uh. I want I want to win fair. I'm not doing it that way. Even though Triple H is known to use a sledgehammer, so it's like Triple H wants to win fair. That's that's kind of surprising right there, because you would expect, hey, maybe Triple H will get the win, but no. And uh, but now we have Undertaker who runs down, knocks out the referee again. Here we are, you know, referee taking more bumps than the wrestlers. And uh, Hogan's just like, no, I'm not winning that way. So now we're playing opposites of both sides here with the same type of uh, ordeal here where it's like, no, they don't want to win by cheating. They want to win fair. But, you know, Hogan, he hits the leg drop on Triple H. And, you know, this was somehow more honorable, I guess you would say, because Hogan gets a big pop for the win. But this was also around the time ratings kind of plummeted because Mm -hmm. Hogan was champion and Hogan took the blame, which was probably more due to the brand split and bad writing than anything that he did, I guess you would say. Um, Of course, this all led to one of the funniest and saddest feuds in recent memory with, you know, Hogan versus Undertaker, which we would see the same thing the next month as Hogan drops the belt after only holding the belt for one month. Same thing with Triple H. He, you know, I think he only, I think Triple H only held the belt for a month and two days. Uh, I'll tell you what, man. I hate... When you play hot potato with the belt. You look at like Bruno San Martino. That to me. Makes the belt. Right. 
So it's just like I really wish. Like I said, I just I wish Triple H had the belt, and it's just like I understand Hogan winning the belt for business, but like, it's just, and then you have Hogan beat Triple H for the title, and then have him lose it again. So it was all for nothing. And Undertaker would do great things with the belt going on, you know, um, after, not with the belt, but, um, you know, obviously Rock won it, and then Brock Lesnar won it. So it's just like, who the fuck do you want as your champion at this point? You have Triple H, Hogan, Undertaker, The Rock, and then Brock. That's five champions within this few-month radius, and I was never... I never liked when the belt changed hands that often because it makes it a prop. I want the title to feel like a title. Bruno San Martino, Hogan, you know, that's... I want the belt to be legitimate. And it's just not legitimate when the people can't... When the wrestlers can't make the title. When they're just losing it so many times. You know, oh, I'm going to hold it for a month. Oh, I'm going to lose it. Fuck it. And then the person they lose it to loses it again in a month. Like it's just like what are we like what are you what are we doing here? Like this is a belt. You're supposed to legitimize it. Fuck. Uh, took the words right out of my mouth. What are you doing? But what are you doing? You know, anyway, this match was awful. I'll just put it that way. This, it was, yes. This match was only Good for the draw because everybody wanted to see Hogan win the WWE Championship. And it's only redeeming quality is Triple H's mapped out plan for like the first 18 minutes of this fucking match. Obviously, Triple H knew what he was doing more than fucking Hulk Hogan the last three minutes. So this match was only 20, this match was 22 minutes. Like 22 minutes and maybe like a couple seconds. But let's just put, you know, let's just put it this way. It was clear that the brand extension was going to be more of a bland extension. This is <laughs> oh god, ah, joke. I'm kidding, but putting the title on Hogan was a mixed bag at best. Ratings went down. Buy rate buy rates were stagnant. Even merchandising was down for some quarter of the year. Um, you know, quarter of the year before. Uh, most of that was due to, I would say, the brand extension and horrible, horrible booking. But at the same time, you know, this was a new era in wrestling. This was 2002. This was over a year after the purchases of WCW and ECW. So there was no more competition. And this was really around the time, uh, from a personal perspective, that uh, independent scenes were very, you know, dark because independent wrestling wasn't as big as it is today. And this was around a time where there wasn't a lot of territories or practically no territories at all by this point, which why, which is why you would see the rise of TNA in 2002. Yeah. And a lot of other guys try to make their companies like there was, I think there was like XPW, which was basically like the second 
rise or you know like the second coming of ECW, which then and you know end up too well because I think it only lasted maybe like a year or two. Um, and then you had that other promotion that had like Hogan and uh like Lawler on commentary. I forgot the name of it, but it was like one of those shit bad wrestling shows that it was so it was good bad let's put it that way it was like it was so bad but you you know you could still watch it at least but you know more importantly though like the face of the wwf was now the face of the past Mm -hmm. you know you're putting the wwe championship on somebody who held this belt you know 20 years ago so are we going to be going through this resurgence of saying your prayers and taking your vitamins? Would you would would you say this was a step back for Vince McMahon and him saying like, "Oh, I missed the good old days." It's him selling out. I wouldn't say uh, it's him missing the good old days, memory wise, but it's him missing the good old days, money wise. Um, Hulk Hogan, you know, he's not the greatest in ring wrestler of all time. He had some good Japan shit. I'll admit that, but he was the biggest draw they had other than Stone Cold. Yep. So, you know, this was him with dollar signs in his eyes. But uh, what would you give this uh, for a letter grade, this overall pay-per-view? Well, before I get to the letter grade, uh, I just wanted to get through a couple other things here about this pay-per-view. So, like I said, Instead of them giving it to, you know, the face of the future, they, you know, they ended up going, turning the hands of time, you know, giving it back to Hulk Hogan. Yeah. And for over half a decade, their mantra was, we're better than WCW because we have younger, faster, quicker, better wrestlers, and all they have is a guy coasting on the past. Well... Now the WWF was pushing that same guy as their champion, and he was five years older, you know? You know, five years older after, you know, this whole WCW tarnish and demise because of all the, you know, just crummy storylines that all these old-time guys were going through. And, you know, I think this was around the time the WWF stopped being cool. And kids moved on to hard drugs, sex, or whatever their chosen method of pissing their parents off was. Um, The way I see it, if I had to give this a solid grade for Backlash 2002, I want to give this a C. Because it wasn't bad, but it wasn't that good. And that was basically, you know, the mixed feelings with 2002. Because later on throughout the year, the other half of the year ended up being tremendous. But at the same time, this was around the time that, you know, WWF was going through some changes. They were going through some licensing changes, um, changing the F or getting the F out and making it WWE. So they had to change their whole style. They couldn't be this, you know, this TV 14 
rating that they used to be. Obviously, they had to tone it down a little bit because now they're focused more on the entertainment aspects rather than uh, the hardcore aspects that they try to emulate with ECW, which is why the Attitude Era became somewhat of a success. Yeah, I've always said I'll take Federation of our entertainment any day, but for letter grade, I would say a C as well. Um, unfortunately, the undercard delivered more than expected. Yeah. Whereas the main events, their marquee matches were disappointing because you had the number one contenders match. And then you had the main event, which, like we were talking shit about, it's just, it's bad booking. This pay-per-view is a good example of seeing dollar signs. You know, this wasn't building towards the future. This in no way was preserving your talent. This was... Last minute, Vince saying, oh, we can capitalize. And I just, I really hate this main event. And I really didn't like the number one contenders match. But you did have a solid under and mid card. So if the main events, those two marquee matches were great, this could have been like an A pay-per-view. It's those two matches that really brought this down really bad. And I hate to say that because, you know, in theory, Taker and Stone Cold should have been great. It was just overbooked and 27 minutes long is just, that's ridiculous. And I think even Triple H and Hogan, they were like 22 minutes, I think it was. Yeah. Even that's a little long for Hogan at this time, you know. The booking is just really unfortunate. It, it really is. And that's why I go with a C. It's right there in the middle. Great undercard, decent mid-card, bad main events. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think the matches that really sold the show that made this, you know, a tolerable pay-per-view were, you know, Angle and Edge and then RVD and Guerrero. Yeah. And two then, great, two great matches. And then you had a pulverizing debut pay per view match for Brock Lesnar, which he would turn out to be a valuable asset within the next couple of months. Uh, the Cruiserweight Championship match in the beginning, uh, you know, phenomenal opener, you know, say the less. But, but you know, the matches that really became a disappointing factor, which ended up just dragging or, you know, Austin Undertaker, which I believe this was their second pay-per-view that they fought uh, because they had fought at No Way Out. And now here they are fighting on another pay-per-view card. And then we had Triple H and Hogan, which I said, you know, it's WWF turning back the clock and putting the title on somebody who held it two decades earlier instead of focusing on the future. Yeah, and that's one of those things, like I said. Um, unfortunately, that's where greed comes in because Vince was seeing dollar signs. That's it. 
if the crowd reacted bad to Hogan, this never would have happened. You know, it's right. only because he was so over at this time and he wanted that he wanted to capitalize. And I understand from a business position. I understand that. Trust me. But you got a bad product out of a good business decision. And even it didn't even really turn out to be that good of a business decision anyway. So it was kind of a lose-lose situation. Bad product and not that good of money. Unfortunately. But we will soon get through all those trenches throughout the rest of this year. Oh, hell yeah. Uh, the next time you guys will see us, we'll be reviewing Insurrection 2002, uh, the UK exclusive pay-per-view for the WWF, and the final aired uh, WWF pay-per-view before going through the changes of World Wrestling Entertainment. Yeah. So... Uh, social media, Danny Bryant on Facebook. You can find me on Instagram at D underscore Banshee187. And, of course, you can find me on Twitter and YouTube at DandyBeast94. So be sure you hit that subscribe button, especially if you're watching my channel and you're not subscribed. <sighs> what are you doing? <laughs> DVD Freak, where can we find you? Uh, the DVD Freak on YouTube, I try to post daily, um, and uh, the Wrestling DVD Room on Facebook. I also have a Facebook, but I don't really use it that much. I only really use it for the DVD Room. And then Instagram, the period DVD Freak, because some ass fuck decided to take my username. So, right there, pal. But, yeah, you can follow me on there. And like I said, I'm not too big on social media. I mainly, um, I'm a YouTube guy. So, yeah, just uh, check out my shit, I guess. And be sure to tune in to all our latest episodes of the Pro Wrestle Zone podcast. And until next time, guys, this has been the Pro Wrestle Zone podcast. Have a good night. Peace.